Good morning, everyone. You know, over the course of the week, as I'm preparing messages, studying and reading, things will happen that sometimes the Lord will, will work with and um, I feel sometimes need to be incorporated into my sermon. And sometimes things happen with other people and they say, please don't make this a sermon illustration on Sunday. And a few things happened this week, which I was tempted to bring up as a sermon illustration, but I assured the individuals that I would not be doing that, so I will not mention what it's like to get a key stuck in your ignition and not to be able to get it out because the car wasn't in park. So uh, for the person that this happened to, I'm not going to mention who it was, uh, but I will not use that as a sermon illustration, so just wanted to assure you of that. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7 this morning. Uh, we have been looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, and a lot of what we've seen has, to, has so many similarities to what we see the Christian life and, and how Christians are, are faced with different trials and different circumstances. And this morning as we look at, this has really been... A, a long series of one message that we've been looking at this 15th miracle of the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And it's finally, we're seeing the final fulfillment of it here in chapter 7. And our passage this morning is going to take us from verse number 8 of chapter 7 down through verse number 20 in a sermon that I've titled, In the Hand of the Lord. In the Hand of the Lord. We're told in Proverbs 21, verse number 1, it says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, we may not necessarily see it all the time. We may not even acknowledge it. But the Lord is quietly orchestrating his plans through our lives. Sometimes life will throw us curveballs and situations that we weren't necessarily expecting. And even when we seem to be no longer in, in control, rest assured that not a single day passes where God is not still on his throne and his will is still going to be accomplished even in the midst of the chaos and the uncertainty that we deal with in our lives. We're told in Proverbs 16.33, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The idea being that, that plans change all the time, but God always remains in control. Nothing happens here on earth. Nothing happens in our lives without first passing through the hand of God. Sometimes as you're able to maybe take a step back from all of the chaos and just all of the nonsense that is going around in your life, you're able to see just how perfectly God has orchestrated events and accomplished his purposes through circumstances which in your mind seem chaotic or even impossible. When you can see that, your only response is to come before God in complete humility and reverence. It's kind of sad to see how much it takes for us, though, to truly see God for how great he is. And sometimes it requires us first coming to the end of our own reason and coming to the end of our own logic to finally admit that God is not, uh, that God is not limited by reason and logic. God doesn't have to act according to what makes sense to us. And he is, isn't confined to operate according to what we deem as being possible. And this is really what makes him God. That he doesn't have to do things according to what we think have to be done. It's interesting that no matter how many times God proves himself powerful above every human inclination, we continue to be surprised that he can do things that are beyond our explanation. I mean, what else does God have to do to get our attention? For us to really believe that he's all-powerful, that he's almighty, that he is not limited by what we are limited by here on earth. What else must he do for us to see him for who he truly is? What else must he do for us to accept that he is indeed all-powerful? What else does God have to do for us to completely trust him day to day, moment to moment, and not have to worry about anything ever again? 
Now, we definitely go through seasons where we're believing in the power of God and we're understanding that he's capable of doing anything and everything. But eventually, we allow our own reason and our own logic to creep back into our mind. And that brings us to doubt. It brings us to be uncertain about other things. God doesn't always work the way that we expect. And you know what? That is a good thing. Believe me, it is far better for us to leave all of our matters into the hands of the one who can see both the beginning as well as the ending, as opposed to us who can only see what is happening right now. And let's be honest, even when we can see what is happening right now, our vision is often blurred. Now, in our passage this morning, we're going to see God work in ways that we would never have expected. He will accomplish his purposes using the most unlikeliest of people. He will move people to act who have been defiantly opposed to him. And he'll bring about a positive change for undeserving and unappreciative people. Where we left off in the narrative as we've been looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, we left off looking at four specific individuals, four leprous men. And these four leprous men were relegated to living out their miserable lives beyond, outside the gate of Samaria. Now, Samaria, being the capital city of the northern kingdom, uh, had been besieged by the armies of Syria. Syria and their armies had completely surrounded the city, and they were under the rule of King Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria. And as they besieged them, they had basically a stranglehold around the necks of those that were living in Samaria because they cut off all the resources. There was no food. There was nothing coming into Samaria. And we talked about how bad the situation had come for those that were living in Samaria. Uh, Ben-Hadad had long been waiting to capture and kill Jehoram, who's the king of Samaria during these days. But he had been unsuccessful on numerous attempts. But now his fortune seems to have changed. He's got Samaria completely surrounded and cut off. And people are dying inside of the city. They have no way to stop this. This brilliant plan to besiege Samaria appears to be working perfectly. As we've mentioned previously, the people in Samaria are suffering immensely. And in only a matter of a little while, everyone is soon going to be dead or forced to surrender to the armies of Syria. And it's interesting that in times of great distress, which is exactly what the people of Samaria were facing, people generally call out to God for help. Even those who are opposed to God. You know, there's a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. When your back is pushed up against the wall and you have exhausted every effort of your own, even if you don't believe in God, you're going to be inclined to call out to God for help. And here are these people who have been rebellious against God, and now their lives are being threatened, not just through starvation, but through other situations that have come up. They're dying. And you would think that in this horrible and helpless state, they would be calling out to God. But that's not what we see. Not a single word of that is mentioned with the people of Samaria here in our narrative, let alone with their king. Not even Jehoram is calling out to God for help. It's almost as if the king and his people have just accepted their fate. We're doomed. We're completely surrounded. There's no chance or possibility of any food or resources coming in. We've already resorted to to selling refuse and eating that and then cannibalism as, as well, which can't even imagine how bad that is. No one was looking for the Lord for help, though. And quite honestly, they had turned their backs on God so many years ago and had been worshiping idols for so many years that God isn't even a thought on their minds, even when they have nothing left. Now, based on all of this, you would expect for God to just take a step back and let them get what they have coming to them, right? They're not even asking for help. I mean, we could argue that they don't deserve any of his help based on how rebellious they've been, but they're not even asking for his help. Syria has them completely surrounded. There's just maybe days left before they all end up dying or eventually just surrender and walk out and say, you know what, we're going to throw ourselves at the mercy of the Syrian army. If they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us. Maybe they'll take us captive. Either way, we're done. They don't even bother calling out to God for help. And you would think that based on all of this, God would just say, you know what, you deserve it. 
You deserve to get this fate. You deserve to die where you are in this helpless and hopeless situation, in this miserable situation that you're in. You deserve for the Syrians to come in and just kill you. And this is what makes the actions of God incredibly amazing. For God does not give them what they deserve. They had this coming. They deserved it all. We read the words of God in Isaiah 65 and verse number 1. Isaiah 65 verse 1 says, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. God would intervene and help those who weren't even asking for his help. He would help those who weren't even looking for him. He would rescue those who weren't even asking to be rescued. He would show himself strong on behalf of those who repeatedly insulted him and openly despised him and were worshiping false gods. What is wrong with some people? How much will it take for God to get people's attention? As we look in the mirror, we realize that we're just the same way. None of us were seeking after God. None of us were asking to be rescued. None of us were pleading with God to provide us a, a reason to have hope. And yet, we're told that God extended his offer of grace anyways. And the wonderful message of the Bible is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Praise the Lord for that. If you're saved today, it is only because God's grace abounded infinitely more than how much your sin had abounded. And that's saying something. That is saying something because we're quite sinful. In fact, we've mastered being sinful. And yet the Bible says that God's grace abounded infinitely more than how much our sin abounded. No one is saved because they deserved it. No one has extended grace because they were worthy of it. In fact, that goes against what grace is because grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved. All of us are saved despite the fact that we didn't deserve it. So logically, none of it makes sense. None of it at all makes sense. Why would God extend favor? Why would God show grace to those who don't deserve it? To us who weren't even asking for it. Why would God give the opportunity for hope to a miserable and a wretched race of men? Why would God do so much good to those who repeatedly insult him and openly despise him? Now, logically, it makes no sense. And you know what? I don't care. I don't need it to make sense. I'm just eternally thrilled that God has offered salvation to me anyways. It doesn't make sense. If I try and reason with my own mind why he did this to me, why he extended grace to me, why he has shown me mercy when all I deserved is eternal judgment, I'm going to make myself miserable. And yet God, out of his infinite love and compassion, has extended grace, has shown mercy to people like me who don't deserve any of it. So I don't need to figure out the why or even the how. I just need to accept that it was done. And what a blessed truth it is that Jesus Christ has come and paid the price for all of my sin and all of your sin and that all that he requires is a simple faith to believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. The very moment and for all eternity, thou shalt be saved. God's grace is an offer that is extended to everyone. All we have to do is receive it. What a blessing it is. It makes no sense, no sense that God would do this. And yet he's done it. So the more that I look at this passage here in 2 Kings chapter 7, and I see God operate in ways that just don't make sense, I find myself realizing that this is actually consistent with God's nature. I look at this, and from my human perspective, I say, let them have what's coming to them. They don't deserve an ounce of your favor. And then I realize I might as well be speaking in the mirror. Because how is it any different than the way I've treated God? How is it any different than what I deserve? God should have just brought the hammer of judgment down upon them all, down upon all of us. But God didn't do that. And it's not to say that God 
hadn't given Jehoram and Israel ample opportunity to turn to him in repentance, but he could have easily wiped them off the face of this earth. And I don't think that we appreciate the mercy of God enough. There are many instances where we're quick to suggest that God should act in judgment without considering how many reasons we gave God to do the same to us. Now, I'm willing to bet, and I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet that every single one of us are here because someone witnessed to us more than once. I'm willing to bet that the majority of the people that are here heard the message of the gospel more than once because the first time you heard it, probably you did not receive it. Probably the first time you heard it, you're thinking, you know what, that's not for me. I know what you Christians are all about. I've seen some of the things that you do, and I'm not buying it. And so it probably took repeated presentations of the gospel, whether through a parent or through a friend, some loved one, maybe a complete stranger, but repeated opportunities to hear the gospel presented. And honestly, we didn't deserve any of them. And yet God afforded us ample opportunity to receive the gospel and to be saved. And the same thing is happening here with how he's dealing with the wicked king Jehoram and wicked and rebellious people of Israel who want nothing to do with him and have made it openly known that they're going to worship false gods. Many instances where we think that God should be quick to judgment without considering how we gave him opportunities to do the same to us and he was merciful. The mercy that God showed Jehoram and Samaria here is truly remarkable and it wasn't even limited with just mercy. He didn't just withhold from them judgment because God is showing them favor as well here. God not only sent the Syrians running away for their lives, he also used the resources and all the supplies that the Syrians had there in their camp surrounding Samaria to meet the needs of the starving and famished Samaritans. And notice how God works this all out. Look back at what it says in verses 3 and 4. For those of you maybe that weren't here last week, listen, listen to what it says in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Kings chapter 7. This is where we were introduced to these four leprous men. It says, and there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. See, if you were a leper during those days and had this wretched disease to which there is no cure, you were forced to live outside the camp and just outside the, the gate of Samaria. And there they were in this isolated region between the city, which was behind them, and the camp of the Syrians, which was before them. They're living out their days. And here are these four leprous men. It says, and they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So these four men had no clue what was going on, but they were being used by God. God may not have spoken to them in a clear, audible voice, but he moved them to go to the camp of the Syrians to hopefully receive some aid. Because as they're thinking things out in their mind, they're thinking, listen, we're going to die from leprosy one way or another. The famine has hit us as much as it's hit anyone. We can't go back into the city of Samaria because, let's be honest, there's no food there. So, you know, we're either going to die where we are or we're going to die back in Samaria. But there's a chance if we go to the Syrians that they may have mercy on us and take us captive and give us some food. Either that or they're going to kill us. But either way, this is the only possibility that affords us any sort of option to maybe have some food. We're going to die no matter what. Do we die with the option of maybe having some food, or do we just die from starvation except that we're not getting any food? So they opt to go to the camp of the Syrians, and God was moving in them to do this. God was moving with their mind and their rational ideas to go there. They had no clue that the tents and the camp of the Syrians were left completely filled with food and resources and that God had sent a noise sending the Syrians running for their lives back home. All we see is that these four lepers acting of their own volition in response to the simple thoughts on their present situation and they followed the path that made the most sense. And look what happened in verses 5 through 7. Again, God is kind of, you know, shifting and letting us know what's happened. So these four leprous men are talking about what they're going to do. And then God shows us what has happened out in the camp. It says, And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were gone to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Why? 
Verse 6, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they, and this is speaking of the Syrians, they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. So the four leprous men show up and there's an empty, empty camp. They didn't hear the noise. They didn't hear the noise that God sent to scare away the Syrians. They didn't hear the noise of the Syrians running away. They show up and everything's empty. Everything's gone. Except, or I mean, just the people are gone, but everything else is left behind. They have no idea what's happened. And I find it really neat to see how the supernatural actions of God work in conjunction with the natural actions of man. Now, you would have expected for the content of verse 5 to be recorded after verses 6 and 7. That the natural actions of these four men would have been to go into the camp of the Syrians after knowing that the Syrians had vacated the camp and left all the resources and all the food and provisions behind. But the way that Scripture lays it out, though, shows us perfectly how God works on both ends of this. God works openly on one end and secretly on the other. God moved these four men to go into the camp of the Syrians so that the people of Samaria would know that there was food for them. Now, the four men had no idea that this was the end at which God was working. But this is what's going to happen. These four leprous men didn't know that secretly God had sent a noise to scare the Syrians away and have them running back home, leaving everything behind. And now notice what we read in verse number 8. Second, Second Kings chapter 7, verse number 8. It says, And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink. And carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. And came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Back in verse number four, when these four men contemplated what they should do, they never expected that this would be the outcome. Remember, as they're talking about what they're going to do, it says there in the middle of verse number four, it says, Now therefore come, let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. So they're thinking, no matter what, they're going to meet the Syrians. Never once did their minds think, you know what, maybe God scared them off. Maybe we're going to show up and everything's going to be empty and all their tents are going to be filled with all their food and everything that they left behind, but their soldiers are going to be gone. They were certain that they were going to confront the Syrians and that either they would kill them or by some chance they might have mercy on them. But either way, they were certain that they were going to have an interaction with the Syrian soldiers. They didn't hear the noise that the Syrians heard. They didn't even hear the noise of the Syrian army dropping everything they had and running for their lives. When they arrived to find the camp of the Syrians completely deserted, they never once considered that all of this was done by the hand of the, of the Lord. They didn't ask amongst themselves what had happened, which would have been a logical thing to do. You don't just walk in and then everything's empty or you know, everyone's gone, but everything is still full with, with everything that they need. They didn't ask what was happening. Where the people had gone? They didn't discuss what they should do. All that we're told there in verse number eight is that as soon as they noticed that the camp was deserted, they acted like kids in a candy store with no owner around. They're running and grabbing everything off the walls and just, you know, indulging themselves to their heart's desire. They're having a blast into one tent, grabbing food, eating it. While they're eating food, they're filling their pockets with gold and treasure. And then they're running and they're hiding it. And then they're coming back to another tent and eating and stuffing their faces and filling their pockets and going and burying it and keeping treasure hidden so that they can come back to it at a later time. This is crazy. They're treating this camp as if it's their own personal buffet. Again, in all that they did, there was no acknowledgement of God. There was no praise in God for this wonderful bounty that he had provided and they were able to enjoy. Nothing at all. The way we see them acting is actually quite greedy and selfish. As they're happily accepting all of these blessings from God as if this was something completely natural. Remember, these men were lepers. Not even their affliction, having leprosy, had turned them to seek the Lord for help, who alone could have healed them from this wretched disease. Remember, there was no cure for leprosy. So if you're talking about men having their backs against the wall, these were them. If they're going to get any help, it's only going to come from the Lord. Modern medicine had no cure. So 
God had made a provision for what to do to get the lepers back into society if they're cured, but the cure was only to come from God. So you would think, if they're thinking about their wretched condition as being lepers and banished to live outside the city walls, at least they'd call it to God and beg for help, knowing that he's the only answer to their problem of leprosy. They don't even do that. They don't even think about God now that they're, now that they're going and spoiling the camp of the Syrians. It's really no different, though, than what we see happening today. When the unsaved fall upon calamities, few are actually brought to their knees in repentance and seeking God for help. Ecclesiastes 1.9 tells us that there is no new thing under the sun. What we see those four men doing is the same thing that we see happening today. We see people looting today. We have people going around taking things for themselves that don't belong to them. Even though what's happening today is probably much more worse than what these four leprous men were doing, still there is no new thing under the sun. The reason is because one thing has not changed throughout the years and the many years of our existence, and that is the wicked heart of man. These four lepers were spoiling themselves from all the things that were left behind by the, by the Syrians without even once taking consideration that other people back home in Samaria were dying from starvation, at least not initially. They didn't think about it. Now, eventually, they would come to their senses, but not until they enjoyed the spoils of this camp for a while. Look at what we read in verse number 9. So verse number 8 tells us that they just went on this wonderful festival and bouncing from one tent to the next, eating, stuffing their faces with food and lining their pockets with all sorts of gold and silver and things that they could take home. And notice what it says in verse number nine. Then they said one to another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. God's plan to help out those starving in Samaria would not be thwarted by the greed and the selfishness of these four men. God had been using these men from their conversation back in verses 3 and 4, and he is using them again in their conversation among themselves here in verse number 9. First, it was an impulse of self-preservation that led them to go to the camp of the Syrians. And now it is through an appeal to their conscience and notice how the conscience acts in those who are unsaved. As it causes fear of getting caught, as opposed to the horror and anguish of offending a gracious God. Because why is it that they go back? Why is it that they stop what they're doing? Look again at what it says in verse number 9. Then, then they said one to another, we do not well. This is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. Hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. If we're caught, we're going to be in some big trouble. If someone falls, falls upon us and catches us looting one tent after the next and keeping all this to ourselves, it's not going to end well for us. They're not thinking about how, you know what? God has blessed us. We need to go and tell other people so that they too can be blessed with all this. It's the fear of being punished, the fear of getting caught that lends them, lends them to go and to tell others about what's going on. These men, again, were still not thinking of God. They were more concerned about what would happen to them if all the people that are back home in Samaria found out that they had kept all of this food to themselves. So notice what they did in verses 10 and 11. It says, So they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied and tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. So not allowed to enter into the city, these leprous men, they called out to those who kept watch over the gate of the city, the porters, and they told them what they'd found. And when the porter heard the news, he goes and he tells the other porters, and the news is eventually brought to the king, King Jehoram. Evidently, the porter didn't think the news to be too far-fetched to go and to wake up the king and tell him, because what we're going to find is that the king has woken up. It's an early morning when this happens. And that's what we see happening in verse number 12. Notice what it says in verse 12. It says, And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done unto us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. Now this reaction from King Jehoram is really 
no surprise. Even though Elisha, the prophet, had told him that something miraculous was going to happen within 24 hours, it never once crossed the king's mind that God would deliver on the promise through his prophet and that this was the news that God had done that. Jehoram is convinced that this is all big one trap. I know what King Ben-Hadad is up to. I know what he's thinking. He's told all the Syrian soldiers to vacate the camp, to hide in the, hide in the bushes, hide in the weeds, so that when we come out and start spoiling the tent, then they're going to pounce and get us. I know what he's up to. I know his tricks. Rather than seeing that God is actually at work, rather than accepting this news with gratitude, he voices skepticism. He'd previously seen God do the impossible and he continues to suspect that something else is going on here instead of just accepting that God is at work. Now, perhaps you're thinking that Jehoram is actually being wise by acting this way. You know what? Cautious optimism. You know, before he jumping up and down with joy, let him go and investigate the matter. Who wouldn't do that? But I can reassure you that God was not on this man's mind at all. And this was not cautious optimism that he's exercising here. This was unbelief at its finest. It was never an inkling, never even as the slightest thought in his mind that maybe God is at work. He's entirely convinced that the Syrians are up to something and that God is not in the picture at all. When he heard the news, his mind didn't immediately jump back to what the prophet Elisha had said to him 24 hours earlier. It didn't lead him to think, you know, could it really be? You know, Elisha did say about this time, tomorrow, things are going to be different. Could it be possible? Did God really provide miraculously food? Not for one second does he entertain that thought. What we see here in verse number 12 is the reaction of an unbelieving man who is at enmity against God. He is at odds against God defiantly. One of the ways we see the unsaved mind express itself is by always seeing or always seeking to reason or explain away the wonderful works of God. The unsaved never want to give, give credit to God. They're always going to come up with some other conclusion, some other explanation other than God to explain the good that has just happened. So as to never give him credit for what only he could do. A simple lesson for all of us to learn is that when God has spoken, it is never up to us to try and reason or to try and logically explain it but to set our minds to understand that God is true and receive what he has said with an unquestioning faith. If God has promised you something in his word, you can expect and you can depend on him to make good on that promise, no matter how crazy it may seem. The unbelief of King Jehoram only goes to show how the news from the four leprous men would have been lost on the porters and the entire royal household had it not been for God secretly working behind the scenes. Jehoram is convinced that he knows that this is all a big trap. So he's not going to fall for it. The people of Samaria are going to starve to death his own subjects with a camp full of food just a stone's throw away. Because he's convinced he knows what's really going on out there. He's going to starve. His entire country is going to starve. Because he doesn't want to acknowledge that God could have done something. Almost because this is where, um, almost it would be that way. And what we see is that God would move yet another individual and move someone to speak up. Look at what we see in verse number 13 because it was all about the end right there. It was done. You know, God is orchestrating all these events and he's, he's literally like pushing food onto the table right before these people and they're forcing it off the table not wanting to accept that it's real. What else could he do? And notice what it says in verse number 13. So one of his servants answered and said, let some... Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. And let us send and see. Let us send and see, he says. No one would dare question the king's 
plans. And yet you have here one of the king's servants moved by God to have great courage and to suggest sending just a small search party. Let's just verify it. Maybe there's some truth to this. We're all going to die anyways. What's the worst that can happen? Let's, spend, let's send just five horses out for you know, people to go and verify whether there's any truth to what these four leprous men have said. As God's plans would not be thwarted by the greed and the selfishness of those four leprous men, neither would it be thwarted by the unbelief of the king. It was God who gave the servant courage to stand up and speak to the king, and it was God who allowed the king to look upon his servant in favor. And this is why we see what has happened there in verse number 14. It says, They took, therefore, two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. The servant speaks up. God gave him courage to do it. And sure enough, Jehoram says, you know what? Fine. We can do that. In his mind, he's thinking, they're never coming back. Because I know the Syrians are just lying awake. I know they're going to ambush them as soon as they get out there. But fine. We'll send them out. It's amazing how perfectly God's plans come to fruition. Now, from our perspective, it seemed like almost a comedy of errors. God is trying to do everything to get these people fed and they're like fighting him at every chance, just shoving the food away. No, 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 I don't want this. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to accept that it's real. But God is working behind the scenes and he's in such precision, appealing to consciences and using human reasoning to accomplish his purposes. God even used King Jehoram to give the command to send the two chariot horses to go and see even if Jehoram was skeptical of the entire situation. Now, if you notice, verse 14 tells us that Jehoram sent the horses, it says, after the host of the Syrians. Not to the camp of the Syrians, but after the host of the Syrians. Because Jehoram is still convinced that the Syrians were hiding. He's still convinced that they're just waiting to ambush the Israelites when they come out there. And so he says, I want you to go, but go after the host of the Syrians. You claim that they ran home? Let's verify that. Go all the way back to see if that's the case. Check every bush along the way. Every little hiding space that they could be hiding. I want to verify that they're nowhere near there and that they went all the way back to Syria. And notice what we see in verse number 15. It says, they went, And they went after them unto Jordan. And lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. So the messengers come back and reveal that they found all sorts of evidence the entire way to the Jordan. This was no secretive plan of the Syrians to lie in wait and to ambush the people of Samaria. This was a complete desertion of the camp as the Syrians clearly ran back home as fast as they could in fear and in terror from the noise that God had sent. And remember how he said that they even left the horses, which had they jumped on the horses, they could have ran back home faster. They weren't even thinking. They just dropped everything and ran as fast as they could. And along the road as they're running, they're just shedding everything they can to run faster. God sends them running so that they're nowhere to be found. And look what we see in verse number 16. The news comes back and it's told to the king that sure enough, what those four leprous men said were true. And verse 16 says, And the people went out. Now this is the people of Samaria, because now word has spread and everyone knows. The people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. And notice what it says here. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. The news is reported to the king and soon spreads to everyone there in Samaria. And just like that, within 24 hours of the prophet Elisha standing before the king and one of his servants, and he declared, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. We read the words here in verse 16. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to 
through the word of the Lord. What are the chances of that? What are the chances that God's word actually came true? Mind-blowing, right? How often does that happen? All the time. All the time. Not some of the time. All the time. And yet we're perplexed. Our minds are blown. We're amazed. We're impressed. Wow, I can't believe you did that, God. Wow, I can't believe your word was true. Wow, I can't believe you provided. Wow, wow, wow. Why are we blown away by this? What else does God have to do to get our attention to, you know, for us to see just how awesome he is, how powerful he is, how magnificent he is? Is our view of God so low that we don't remember just how good he is yesterday to where we are today? What has happened in our lives that we forget about the goodness of God and the wonderful working that God is doing every single moment of our lives? Do you know when you woke up this morning, God worked a miracle in your life? You know that? Just for you to be here, he worked a miracle. You know the very air you're breathing into your lungs? You know who gave that to you? You know who's consistently giving it to you? You know who is consistently holding you together right now, physically? It's not you. It's not me. It's God. He is the one. Colossians 1 says, by him all things consist. He's created all things. And he's the glue that keeps us all together, physically. Without him, we're, we're, we're a pile of mess on the ground. We're nothing. And yet our minds don't even think about half the things that he, do, that he does every single day. We're losing sight of all these wonderful things that God is doing in our lives every moment of every day. And then when God does do something, we're like, wow, where did that come from? Who, who knew that he could do that? And yet this is what he's doing every day. Every day. The prophet Elisha said, tomorrow at this time, this is what's going to happen. And tomorrow at that time, that's what happened. Just as he said. Not because the prophet Elisha said it, but because the word of the Lord had come through the prophet Elisha. God is the agent behind all of it. So what are the chances of the word of God coming true? I'd say pretty good. Pretty good since the Lord through the perfect word that he offers never fails. The prophet Elisha said it would happen and it indeed happened. We may see all sorts of heartache in our lives. We may deal with all sorts of disappointment but one thing we can always be sure of is that not one word of God shall ever fall to the ground. There is not a single promise in God's word that shall not be fulfilled. Some of us would do good to remind ourselves of that truth. Because the way we live our lives, we're living as if God has failed us. We're living as if it's just going to be one more disappointment after the next. And there's no reason to look to God and find hope in the future. That's not to say that we're always going to be cheerful. Or that we're always going to be happy. Or that everything is going to go according to our plans. But God has assured us that his word will never fail and that his promises will always stand. As Solomon blessed the people after the temple had been built, he said this in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56. He said, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. Not one word failed from God's promise. And I tell you that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who spoke through the prophet Elisha and delivered exactly as he said he would is the same God who has spoken to us in his word and we can have full confidence that his word shall never fail. Now notice the meaning of the miracle. Now we've spoken about this miracle I've mentioned for several sermons now and I'd like, like you to now see the spiritual significance behind all of this. We've already identified how the decision of the four leprous men to go to the camp of the Syrians is similar to the decision that every person is called to make when it comes to either believing or rejecting Christ. Now, a few more lessons come to the surface as we look at this entire picture. 
The people of Samaria offer us a clear picture of those that are dying in their sins. They were besieged by the armies of Syria. They had no hope of survival. They had resorted to some really horrible methods as they acted in self-preservation. But no amount of effort was going to cause them to avoid death. They're backed against the wall, staring death in the face, and they still refused to acknowledge God and cry out to him for help. They had turned to idolatry and were presumably vainly trusting in their idols to bring some sort of relief. This offers us such a perfect picture of the wretched condition of the unsaved. How many people today are living like this, where their backs are up against the wall, they're not trusting in Jesus, and they're rejecting everything that he has told them to do, and they're staring death in the face and still not crying out to God for help? How many people are trusting in themselves and trusting in their own idols to be enough for them? How many people are vainly pursuing everything else to offer them salvation while at the same time ignoring and rejecting the message of Christ? It's really a sad picture, one that should light a fire under every single believer to be urgent when it comes to evangelism and soul winning. God moved certain individuals to provide for these people here in 2 Kings chapter 7. Perhaps God has been urging you as well to do something for the people that he has placed in your life. Now we also see that God's divine deliverance by miraculously providing for these starving Israelites is just off the charts. God is merciful, which means that he withheld something bad that they deserved. God could have used the Syrians to judge the people of Samaria to the point where they all died from starvation. You know what? They probably had it coming. They were getting close to that point as it is. God would have been justified to leave the Syrians in the camp and to just wait out all the Samaritans inside the city. But God decided to act in mercy instead, to not give them what they deserved. And this provides a great picture of how God has treated every single human being. God would be completely justified in just snapping his fingers. That was a horrible snap. That's still horrible. I can forget. You know what I mean. He'd be completely justified to just snap his fingers and erase every single one of us from existence once and for all. The only thing that any of us deserve was eternal damnation, eternal separation from him. And yet, God in his mercy has made it possible for everyone to avoid that, that damnation. God has also extended his grace for all those who, who receive him to come to him in faith just as he offered the supply of food for the people there in Samaria. The more we think about it, the more we're hit with the realization of what we have been spared from and what we've been delivered to as believers. Words cannot express just how blessed we are when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. The mercy and the grace of God are far greater than what we could have ever imagined. The truth is that God is far better to us than what any of us deserved. And it is his desire that all believe on his son, Jesus Christ, and that they would be saved. God did as much as he did for Jehoram, for the people of Samaria, not just because they were in a desperate situation, which they were, but for them to see that God alone would be their hope, that God alone would be that their reason for salvation. Remember, back in verse number two, what was said by the servant of the king. Look back at what it says in, in 2 Kings 7, verse two. So after Elisha says, tomorrow at this time, things are gonna change. Verse two says, then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? The prophet Elisha's words from God were received with such criticism Elisha was told that what he was suggesting would require a miracle from God. And that's exactly what God would do. And as we've mentioned, not one word of God falls to the ground. At the end of verse number two, the prophet Elisha had a word for the man who questioned his ability. Look again what it says in verse number two. Then the Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Could this even happen? You're calling for a miracle. Miracles don't happen, he says. And Elisha responds, and he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. And notice what we read in verses 17 and 20. Because there was two things that Elisha said were going to happen. He said, Tomorrow at this time, food is going to be restored in Samaria. Oh, and by the way, you who doubt will see it, but you won't get to partake in it. And notice what it says in verses 17 to 20. It says, And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate. The man who doubted him and questioned Elisha whether or not God could do such a thing. 
is now in charge of holding the gate open. It says, and the people trod upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. And it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. I can imagine what it must have been like standing at the gate of Samaria, as those starving people were frantically trying to make their way to the camp of the Syrians to get their hands on some real food. If they had resorted to eating refuse, than cannibalism. I'm certain that they weren't politely and calmly walking through that gate. They were probably pushing, shoving, scratching, and crawling all the way to the camp. This was like Black Friday shopping on steroids. When they open the doors to Walmart or any store as the people are waiting to get their hands on the newest gadget, which there's only five of them in stock, the doors fling open and people burst in. So much so that the man who's in charge of the gate, the same man who doubted that God could miraculously deliver, like Elisha said, was trampled to death by the crowds of people running to get food. He saw it. He knew that God had delivered, but he didn't get to eat thereof. Another promise of the Lord fulfilled. Now, as solemn as this is, it serves as a real warning that in like manner, God will answer the skepticism and the blasphemous scoffing of this wicked age. The best of the world may laugh, they may ridicule the Lord's servants now, but in eternity, they will gnash their teeth in agony. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 16, it tells us that the gospel is to the one, it says, the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. In other words, the same message that brings everlasting peace and joy to some brings everlasting torment and pain to others. Because the offer is extended to all of us and not many receive it. But those that receive it enjoy the blessedness of everlasting life and peace and joy. God may not always work the way we expect, but far better for us to trust our matters to the hands of the one who can see both the beginning and the ending. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we're thankful that, Lord, we know that you're in control. I know, Lord, that there are plenty of instances where we don't give you the credit that you deserve, and we even doubt what you're capable of doing. And it's a, a foolish thing for us to do, Lord, as our eyes aren't open to see how good you've been. And at times, Lord, even when we see you work, we're amazed that you could even have done such a thing. Lord, help us to be better about that. Help us to understand, Lord, that there is so much about you for us to still learn. And Lord, many things that we have been oblivious about. Open our eyes. Enlighten our spirits. Lord, that we may see what your spirit has shown us and has been trying to teach us all along. So that we may not only just see you, but appreciate all that you are doing for us every single day. Have your way in us. Lord, that we may be a beacon of light to those that you have placed in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.